0: Can social media companies balance freedom of speech with protecting minorities against hate speech? Uganda goes to the polls today and LGBT plus people are in the firing line. The LGBT plus issues is coming up in Thailand in 2021. Hello and welcome to the podcast from Openly, the LGBT plus news website from the Thompson Reuters Foundation. I'm Hugo Greenhouch, LGBT editor of the foundation and overall editor of Openly, which you can find at OpenlyNews.com. This week, Twitter has been criticised for banning US President Donald Trump, but how can social media companies strike a balance between freedom of speech and protecting minorities from hate speech? Today, Uganda elects a new president, but will the elections have any positive impact on the country's LGBT plus population? And we look ahead to the LGBT plus issues that we should be watching in Thailand this year. Stay with us for the top LGBT plus news now. You are listening to the podcast from Openly, the LGBT plus news site from the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Last week Twitter banned US President Donald Trump from its platform, leading to howls of protests not just from his supporters, but also from global leaders such as German Chancellor Angela Merkel and Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. At stake here is the issue of freedom of speech. But how can social media companies balance a commitment to open debate with the responsibility to ensure minorities, such as the Plus community, do not suffer from a barrage of hate speech? I'm now joined by Avi Asher Shapiro, who is the digital rights correspondent at the foundation based in Berlin. So Avi, it's quite a complicated issue. So we talk about kind of freedom of speech, we talk about uh, protection of minorities against hate speech. But what are the main issues here, do you think?
1: Well, we're seeing kind of the explosion or crash of many different competing values at once. And and that's what makes this debate so complicated. You know, we have a number of social media companies that have become sort of the de facto public square in a lot of ways for for debate, but they're also privately owned companies that are able to sort of make any decision they want about who can use them and under what circumstances. But at the same time, uh, people feel that uh, being banned from these platforms is in some cases tantamount to being censored by a government. So at the same time, the platforms are so powerful and they disseminate messages so quickly that when people d- decide to use them to spread hate speech or misinformation, they can quickly uh, whip a society into a fervor. So we're, what, we're de- what we're dealing with here is a, a really complicated question of, of who should be allowed to use these platforms, who should set the rules on these platforms. If the platforms begin to kick people off in the name of safety, at what point have we uh, entered into a domain of censorship? What, what is the line between creating a safe uh, space online for, for, for healthy debate and and uh, allowing for people to abuse that platform to spread misinformation. I mean, these are debates that we've had since the beginning of social media and they're just kicking up to another level in the last
0: uh, week or so. We'll come back to Trump in a second, but we've seen that in Indonesia in particular, where one particular uh, social media company was used to foment riots and led to death, right, and absolute kind of, kind of craziness. But it, it, these are private companies. So it's surely up to them to determine who they want um, on their platforms.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you'll see that uh, this conversation often um, circles around that question, right? I mean, for legally speaking, uh, a company is able to set the terms of of who is allowed on their platform and who's not allowed on their platform. And um, they really don't, no one has a legal recourse if they've been told, hey, you're not allowed to use Facebook anymore, you know, Facebook, or you're not allowed to use Twitter or any of these platforms have, have this sort of sole legal right to make those decisions. But but uh, people rightly point out that, you know, those – as more and more speech happens on these platforms and, and, and as harder to, to start your own platform to, to, to rival it, uh, you know, they, they do take on the, um, the powers almost of a government and their ability to decide what – is and what isn't said, it's, it's, it's quite hard to gather a following of people if you're not allowed to use any social media platforms. So th- that, that's, that's part, of the, part of the struggle, right? I mean, trying to find a happy medium there where, you, you know, governments don't want to be in the position of compelling private companies to host or not host certain kinds of speech. But at the same time, you, you don't want a single executive in Silico- Silicon Valley to be the person who gets to decide who does or doesn't get to have a voice online. Uh, so you really have, a, uh, in some ways, an impossible situation when you have these uh, tech companies that have grown to the size they have and have control of such a large swath of the online conversation.
0: That's interesting. We're, we are talking, or there is talk at the moment, of kind of you know, anti-monopoly laws being brought in. Uh, to affect against tech companies. Certainly kind of back to the days of Standard Oil back in the uh, previous century. But it's interesting, coming back to that kind of point about freedom of speech, you've got some very interesting people who've popped up in the past couple of days to not necessarily defend uh, President Trump, but certainly kind of push for the notion of freedom of speech. Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, Alexei Navalny, opposition leader in Russia. I mean, these are very weird President Trump, very uneasy bedfellows. But is there a central question here of freedom of speech, do you think? I think so. I mean, I, th- I think some of the,
1: um, you know, more thoughtful analysis of, as of this looks at the question of where does a company stand in what's called like the tech stack? So, you know, you have at the top, you have these social media companies where people, uh, you know, uh, post on. But underneath them, there's hosts, there's hosting companies like Amazon Web Services. Under There's also app stores, right? And and the deeper you get in uh, to the tech stack when companies start making decisions about who's able to have an app in the store or who's able to even host a domain online you get into thornier questions right where you're you can really get close to banishing someone from the internet uh, when you're talking about a specific company allowing someone to publish on their platform it's all it's not as much of a freedom of speech question but if you're getting to the root of the internet the deepest tech stack you know someone really getting booted booted offline cuz no one will host their website or no one will allow them to sell an app in the store they can't even you begin to speak on the internet, you do start to, I think, butt up against some of these questions. And we saw major civil liberties organizations over the last week, like the ACLU in the United States, for example, say like, uh, wait a second, some of these decisions to kick certain free apps out of the app store to ban people from uh, certain web hosting services are troubling, even if those services are, or those apps are hosting really disgusting commentary or even fomenting violence. I mean, it does just raise these fundamental questions about Concentration of power uh, of private power and the ability to silence someone uh, without any sort of democratic recourse.
0: Well, Kawhi, we do come back to that kind of, that notion of who controls uh, that power. But um, how has big tech? How has the social media companies responded to this? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the mo- the interesting things is we
1: did see like you know uh, four years of every social media company to to a, to a certain degree all agreeing that um, what the president said was worth uh, hosting. And then within a week or a couple of days of each other, they all changed their mind, right? And the the, the rules didn't change. And, and arguably, the circumstances didn't change much, although we had that incident at the Capitol building. I mean, people would, would, would argue that uh, the president has... Um, you know, encourage similar kind of activities for years, but what, what's changed here? So cynical people say, all these companies see the writing on the wall. We've got a new government coming in. Hey, like now, now let's uh, let's start uh, being more aggressive about our rules. But you know, others say, you know, like better late than never. You know, the president's been abusing these platforms for a long time to foment violence, and let's let's uh, let's kick them off. And then other people say, like, what's as, as you mentioned earlier, what's the precedent you're setting here? Do we really like the idea of a private company you know having the power to 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 kick uh the most powerful democratically elected leader in the world off of their platform you know and then other people say hey he's got he can call a press conference if he wants he's got other megaphones so you know it's really i mean there's really a a cacophony of different perspectives you can take on on this right now
0: well let's bring that back in terms of that kind of cacophony of interest back to the idea of the people that are affected so just how does this affect lgbt plus people in particular do you think yeah, I mean it's 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 a good question. I think you know, we the Thompson Rhodes Foundation ran a really I
1: think great piece uh yesterday from a LGBTQ activist out of Jordan who was making the point that, you know, uh, often LGBTQ users of these platforms are not the ones who are uh, put at the center of the conversation when they can raise concerns that, about hate speech or about um, being demonized or threatened on, on these platforms and, and and it'll take a long time for the for, for the platforms to take action um, you know and, and I think we see that across the board with vulnerable communities people of color uh, queer people you know often the rules of these platforms are not really written for them in mind and the enforcement is not putting them at the center of the conversation, unfortunately. And and, and that even gets more, um, you know, they get relegated to the back of the line even more so when you're looking outside of the United States. Um, it, there's just not a lot of resources thrown at, at making uh, the Internet safe for these kinds of people. And, and, and it, you know, when when you see companies putting all these resources into trying to fix what's going on in the U.S., some people say like, hey, there's you know it's a bit of a double standard here. Uh, you know, I, I wish I wish that, uh, you know, these companies had put all this energy into what's going on in my country and in, in in Myanmar or in, in the Philippines or in Indonesia or wherever where there have been. Um, human rights violations that have been stoked on social media platforms uh, and they've been very slow to respond
0: Final question looking at um, this year and the next couple of years there is seemingly a divide in attitude and opinion towards this uh, between Europe and America Uh, Europe seems far more, far keener on a sort of regulatory control of social media platforms of big tech. America, not so much. But do you think we could see some form of government control applied that will absolutely ensure that minorities, whether they be black, Jewish, LGBTQ, etc., etc., are protected within social media, and yet freedom of speech is also somehow balanced alongside?
1: Well, that would be the the golden ratio, wouldn't it? (laughs) I think, uh, you know, there are models of thinking about um, this that try to strike that balance. You know, there's in the UK there are researchers who have kind of pushed this notion of duty of care, where they try to get social media platforms to think about their role uh, not so much as guarding free speech or as um, you know protecting vulnerable users but just a duty of care to the user base is gen- in general and trying to strike that balance between a uh, marketplace of ideas but also not allowing users to be to be harassed or harmed i mean i think it's uh, is in terms of you know le- legal changes in the united states there's been a lot of debate about whether this specific law section 230 which makes it very difficult to sue a social media company about whether that will be repealed or not that could change the nature of online debate. But, you know, there's nothing really imminent. You know, I think at this point, what we're seeing is that the tech companies themselves are in the driver's seat and they get to make these decisions. And that's why we all woke up one morning and a couple of executives in Silicon Valley all decided that, uh, you know, the president was no longer welcome on their platforms and no one voted on it. And, And all of a sudden, you know, he was gone. And I think that's really emblematic of where we are right now. Uh, these con- these decisions are being made by private companies, uh, and the public at large is is, is is screaming about it, and there's pressure from the media and from politicians. But at this point, we ha- there hasn't been a model that that makes sense that's been developed to to, to change it. Um, although people, you know, say that breaking up the companies will change it. People say that. Um, you know, giving them more liability for defamation on their platforms will change it. But at this point, I mean, I don't see that happening anytime soon.
0: Well, Avi, we shall watch very carefully from over here. But thank you very much for joining us. And you can read more of our coverage on the issues raised here on openly at openlynews.com now. Uganda goes to the polls today, voting in the country's presidential elections. It is expected that President Museveni, who has been in power since 1986, will win once more. But he's facing a potential batter with former reggae singer Bobby Wine. The LGBT plus community in Uganda has faced considerable pressure in recent years. Talk of reinstating the death penalty for gay sex flared again in 2019 before damping once more following pressure from international donors and countries around the world. But the situation for LGBT plus people on the ground remains problematic, exacerbated by coronavirus, for which lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people have often been blamed for spreading. So what do the elections mean for the LGBT plus community in Uganda? I'm now joined by Nisibala, who's the Thompson Rodgers Foundation correspondent based in Nairobi. So, Nisa, thank you for joining us and the podcast will come out Tomorrow, we're talking on Wednesday, just as Ugandans are going to the poll. So, just how much have LGBT issues been a political football? during their respective campaigns?
2: Well, first of all, Hugo, let me just say that this is one of the most hotly contested um, presidential elections Ugandans have seen in many years. And we've got the incumbent president, Yoweri Museveni, one of Africa's longest serving um, leaders, who's been in power for 34 years, seeking a sixth term in president. And he, for the first time, is facing a very strong challenge. From Robert Kagulani, um, otherwise known as Bobby Wine, who's a, 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 who's a singer, um, who turned politician, and is actually half Museveni's age, and he is very popular amongst the youth, and um, I don't know if you know Uganda's demographics. Eighty percent of the population is under thirty years old, so everything is up for grabs here, and. Um, The candidates have been using anti-gay rhetoric Um, to kind of whip up sentiments, popular homophobic sentiments in the country, and particularly the president who has repeatedly made remarks about um, the opposition being supported by LGBT groups overseas and also calling sexual minorities deviants in a recent interview with the British News Channel. As you know, Uganda has a history of of using LGBT community as scapegoats and we've seen local politicians also using um, pledges such as eradicating homosexuality for, from Uganda to kind of win votes. And the impact, of course, on the LGBT community is that it has whipped up a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. People do not want to go out and vote, um, although they do realise it is important. Um, And we have a history in Uganda of when politicians say things, anti-gay remarks, um, homophobic statements. We often see that there are reprisals the public in general start to target them, the police arrest them, they're harassed even more than usual. So it's not a great time at the moment in Uganda for sexual minorities.
0: No, I'm sure. And also kind of back to those comments by President Museveni, which are very inflammatory, but are his opponents any better, do you think?
2: Um, No, not really. I mean, when you ask the LGBT uh, members of the community in Uganda if, um, you know, there are candidates out there that they feel would strongly represent their views, would look to decriminalise um key sex which at the moment carries a life imprisonment in Uganda. And there aren't any real, certainly not presidential candidates or parties that have come out openly and said anything. And um, we did I, I do think they prefer to steer clear of it. I mean these marks may go down well with the public, but if they were to get into power they wouldn't go down so well with international donors and I'm sure a new government would be wanting to look at courting foreign um, countries. Also, we did see in 2014, and Bobby Wine was denied a visa to the UK for homophobic lyrics in some of his songs. But then later in 2019, he did recant and he said that he did not, while he did not agree with homosexuality, he respected the rights of all individuals.
0: Okay, so that's quite an equivocation at that point, rather than a, um, uh, uh, well, certainly kind of not backing for the LGBT plus community in Uganda, but for those people, that community in the country, will this election make any difference, do you think? I mean, it, it, obviously, we are looking at potentially a new president, uh, whether it's Bobby Wine or somebody else, but uh, could they be keen to make their mark and use again LGBT plus people as easy targets?
2: First of all, I think um, given the way the election campaign has gone, um, it's very unlikely we will see a new president. But if we do, I don't think it will make a difference on LGBT rights um, um, directly. For example, I don't see them decriminalising gay sex. But I don't think they will be shouting homophobic remarks from the rooftops, which is what um, the ruling party has done which has promoted increased stigma and discrimination against the community. Um, I think most candidates and parties um, have a similar belief that homosexuality is wrong, but they aren't outspoken about it or um, aren't likely to deliberately target the community.
0: Well, Nita, thank you very much for joining us. And obviously, we are recording this on Wednesday. The elections are on Thursday when the podcast comes out. So we'll be watching the results very carefully. But in the meantime, Nita, thanks again for that. And you can read more on the issue now on Openly at OpenlyNews.com. Thailand is a relatively liberal country in quite a conservative region when it comes to LGBT plus rights. Last year the country edged closer to allowing same-sex civil unions, although stepped back from discussing full marriage equality. But under the terms of the bill currently under discussion by the Thai parliament, the culmination of which we should hear at some point later this year, same-sex couples would also be able to adopt children and jointly own property. So, beyond the headline civil unions bill, what are the other LGBT plus issues we should be watching in Thailand and the wider region this year? I'm joined now by Namwan Wongsumut, correspondent based in Bangkok, so Namwan, thank you very much for joining us. Let's go straight into the main question, which is what are the main LGBT plus issues that we should be watching in Thailand this year?
3: I think the biggest issues for this year in Thailand would be same-sex marriage and unions. So last year the thai cabinet approved a civil partnership bill and that bill would recognize same-sex unions with almost the same legal rights as married couples now if that bill is passed by parliament where we're hoping that will take place this year um, the legislation would make thailand only the second place in asia after taiwan to allow the registration of same-sex unions Um, in which couples uh, would be able to adopt a child and they would have rights to inheritance and joint property ownership. However, LGBT plus groups don't consider uh, the civil partnership bill as giving full marriage equality. And we could see that after the, uh, the cabinet approved um, the bill last year, many, many people were posting their comments on Twitter using the hashtag say no to the civil partnership bill in Thai. And um, so we are now seeing a movement where LGBT groups are pushing separately for marriage to kind of uh, be redefined as being between two people rather than between a man and a woman. And we also expect that this year the Constitutional Court will deliver a verdict on whether or not the current marriage law violates the Constitution. And there, uh, there's also... Um, an issue about the gender recognition bill. So last year, uh, the cabinet was also expected to deliberate uh, deliberate this, this bill and this would allow citizens to change their officially listed gender without the need for gender reassignment surgery. However, that bill has been put on hold. So we'll have to see if the bill will be deliberated again this year.
0: Okay, so quite a lot happening in Thailand this year basically But uh, it's interesting that the activists are worried about the fudge of the civil union uh, bill being passed. I mean, we've had that same situation here in the UK. We started with civil partnership and then ended up with with marriage equality. So we'll keep our eye on that one. But how about the the wider region in terms of the same question again for the main LGBT plus issues
3: coming up this year? Just last month. Bhutan became the latest Asian country to decriminalise same-sex relationships, while in Singapore, activists are also pushing for decriminalisation, so we are hoping to see if in Singapore the matter will be considered in Parliament this year. Um, In India, uh, they have decriminalized same-sex relationships in 2018, however, couples still don't have the legal right to marry, and there have already been petitions to the court for the constitutional right to marry, although that may also take years. Um, there's also a growing movement in support of same-sex marriage in countries like Hong Kong and Japan where we've seen several couples filing lawsuits challenging the ban on same-sex marriage.
0: Yeah and so it's going to be quite a busy year but uh, those are the facts of the matter in terms of what we should be watching out for but uh, turning to, to your opinion in terms of being based in Bangkok now is the situation for LGBT plus people in Thailand getting better or worse at present do you think?
3: I think it's definitely getting better, and last year in particular was a very interesting year. We had major anti-government protests throughout the country. Many of those attending were young people, school students, university students, who were also calling for more rights for LGBT plus people, um, such as students demanding that schools change uh, change the dress code and we also saw some changes from the government side as well where Jantaburi, which is a province in the east of Thailand, they became the first province to announce measures to prevent discrimination against LGBT plus people.
0: Okay, so again, some kind of cause for hope there, but uh, in terms of, uh, again, a a final kind of follow-up question to that, is there cause for optimism, do you think, in that case, that things will change for the better in 2021 for the LGBT plus community, or, or, or maybe for the worse?
3: In Thailand, according to Google Trends, over the past year, there has been an increase in the number of Thais who are interested in LGBT plus issues. So I personally think that's a sign that people's attitudes towards LGBT plus people are changing. However, Thailand's Committee on Gender Discrimination said they received many complaints about discrimination faced by LGBT plus people last year, so there's still a lot of stigma in schools, um, in the workplace, and in healthcare facilities, and LGBT plus people are also often rejected by their families as well in Thailand. Now, um, as for the region, I think. Asia in general lags behind Europe and North America when it comes to progressive LGBT plus laws. However, um, since the legal change in Taiwan in 2018, I'm quite optimistic that many other countries in Asia will follow.
0: Okay, so again, lots of stuff there for us to look out for. But now, in the meantime, thank you very much for joining us from Bangkok, and you can read more of our coverage on LGBT plus matters in Thailand on openlynews dot com now. You are listening to the podcast from Openly, the LGBT plus news site from the Thomson Reuters Foundation. That's all for this week, but do catch up with all this week's stories and more at openlynews.com. And do join me, Hugo Greenhouge, for another look at the week's LGBT Plus stories at the same time next week. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Openly, and be sure to like our Facebook page too. This episode was produced and edited by Rachel Savage. And from all of us here at Openly and the Thompson Reuters Foundation, do stay safe and well, and thank you for joining us.